one approaches the traditional place of the Last Supper on a series of stairways, years ago, so many millions had come and had walked up and down those stairs that they were literally worn down and had to be totally replaced. We know that this is not the authentic room, but it may be on a site that originally housed the room. It is entirely stone, the floor, the walls, and the ceiling, and the ceiling walls are vaulted, and that accounts for the echo sounds while we are present in the room. It is certain that this upper room is in the area of what was known in the Old Testament period as Sion, or Mount Zion, the eastern hill. And second, whatever its exact measurements in the time of Jesus, tradition assigns to the same location the events of the day of Pentecost. Cyril of Jerusalem at first speaks of the Spirit descending on the apostles in an upper room, and it was natural for them to assume it was the same room in which the Last Supper was celebrated. Today it is a custom for the students of the Jerusalem Center as they complete their New Testament studies to come in the evening to this room and after presentations on the records of John to sing together. It's almost like an echo chamber and the song they most love is In This Very Room. The song ends, In this very room there was quite enough love for all mankind because of Jesus. We know for sure that this is not the exact room. Why? First of all, all of this architecture is Byzantine, and that faces Mecca. So this is a Muslim construction, perhaps reconstruction. But it was on Mount Zion, it was in this vicinity, and it was in an upper room. I've often pondered why an upper room. It's an upper room where the school of the prophets met. It's an upper room in Nauvoo where the prophet introduced the highest ordinances of the temple. It is an upper room where our present day apostles meet on their fast day. The Passover feast is a tremendous joyful experience. It is the celebration of deliverance, and it is entirely designed to impress everyone in the family with the fact that, as we would say, they were there. We were in Egypt. We were slaves. We were 400 years under the dominion of ruthless tyrants, and then God delivered us. It is standard practice to this day for the youngest son, or if there is no son, then daughter, 
to stand up early in the ceremony and say, what is different about tonight? And then the entire rest of the order or Seder is the answer to that question. You can imagine, therefore, Jesus knowing what he was about to go through and how he might have felt if the youngest present, perhaps John, stood up and said, what is different about tonight? The most significant night in history and the moment was beginning of the most all-inclusive deliverance, not just from slavery, but from all of the burdens of mortality. Now, there would have been, if they followed the order strictly, four cups of wine. And we don't know at what point Jesus undertook to transform that pattern from Passover celebration to sacrament. But at some point, he broke bread, blessed it, and gave it to his disciples. And at some point, he poured wine, blessed it, and gave it to his disciples. The Joseph Smith translation says, take, eat, in remembrance of my body. Take, eat, in remembrance of my blood. But neither his body nor his blood had at that point been sacrificed. So they were both anticipating and probably not understanding fully and also being asked to remember the rest of their lives. One other point about the sacrament. He says, and this is clearer again in the Joseph Smith translation, I will not partake with you again. That's why we call it the last supper. And we know from the record, as again Joseph Smith adds it, we know that he, having said that, recognized that that brought keen sorrow. As they said, they began to be heavy because in their hearts they were saying, don't leave us now. But then he added another sentence, until I partake of it with you new in my kingdom. And the new refers to the new feast that is yet ahead, the messianic banquet, but also the new condition that will obtain when that day comes. And even to the newness that is possible through faithful partaking of his sacrament. Old things have passed away, he says prophetically. All things have become new. The sacrament, like all the ordinances, is a channel of power through which the powers of godliness enter our souls. Peter speaks of that when he says, we are partakers of the divine nature. And that's what the sacrament at its heart really is. Two more most crucial events occurred that night. After this ceremony, Jesus removes his outer robes, he takes a basin, 
And he proceeds, having girded himself with a towel, to wash and wipe the feet of his disciples. Now you have just walked on more or less stone pavement from the bus to this room. They would have walked to the room either with sandals or barefoot. Remember, this is Passover. The population of Jerusalem, ordinarily 60,000 by some estimates, tripled during this holy season. 180,000 people are milling about in the city. Not only that, they brought their animals with them. So walking in any area of this city, whether you had sandals or not, is walking in rubbish, in the droppings of animals, and in the dust and grime that go with big city life. To wash the feet of someone in this setting is a requirement of a slave, but you don't ask your friends to do it. He did it, and Peter was so struck with this, he in effect cries out and says, not me. In effect, this is beneath your dignity. And Jesus replies, Peter, if I do it not, thou hast neither part nor lot with me. Strong language. In our understanding, that is almost to say, Peter, this is an essential ordinance. Peter begins to understand, or at least understands that, that it's somehow essential, and says, all right, not just my feet, wash everything. What is the message? He himself gave it. He set the example of true Christ-like leadership. The shepherd does not recoil from the diseases of the sheep. The shepherd serves. And that is sometimes grimy, gritty, dirty work. And any leader who supposes that he is supposed to simply preside and not, in effect, get into the rugged realities is not a leader, at least not one in the image of Christ. The servant, said Jesus, is not greater than his Lord. And as I have done to you, so ye are to do to each other. The third crucial event that night was that he gave what I like to call the comfort discourses. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then crowning them all, a prayer, a high priestly prayer. Here is the person who is himself in the greatest need this night of comfort, who dedicates his energies before going to Gethsemane to preparing and comforting his disciples. This is another reality of life, that often in our worst crises, we must give of ourselves to comfort those who are around us, even in the hour of death. Sometimes the dying person has to somehow reach out to help those he will or she will leave behind. And so these majestic 
rich, soothing discourses. I must go away, but when I do, you will receive the, what? Comforter. And then that's identified with the Holy Ghost, which he apparently wanted them to realize they had had exposure to tastes of, but in his absence would receive in more completeness, and that's the day of Pentecost. We happen to be here on the weekend of Pentecost, the outpouring day. But he also then, in, in the 14th chapter, identifies the Comforter with himself. And this is what Joseph Smith calls the second Comforter, the ultimate Comforter. I will not have you comfortless. I will come unto you, and even the Father will take up his abode with you. In the prayer that he then offered, and there is no way to determine where that was, was it here? Were the disciples nearby listening to him? Or was it somewhere between here and the garden? We don't know, but someone heard it and someone recorded the essence of it. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us. We have an even more profound glimpse of the intensity of that prayer and of what it must have felt like to the disciples from Third Nephi. Three times Jesus withdraws from the faithful multitude and prays. The first time for the outpouring of the Spirit, the second more or less thanksgiving that it has been received, and then words that cannot be uttered. But we have the statement of the multitude. No one can conceive of the joy that filled our hearts when we heard him pray for us unto the Father. In modern revelation, he evokes that for us, section 45. Listen to him who is pleading your cause. Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who gave himself. Wherefore, Father, spare these, my brethren, that they may come unto thee. That is his perpetual prayer since the night he earned the right to offer it. We travel to Jerusalem viewed from the south because in no other place are the contrasts of the land and city of Jerusalem so apparent. One can see life bustling, burgeoning in every direction and new construction and yet one-third of the Mount of Olives is covered with tombs, the reminder of death. One can see green and verdant and fruitful vineyards and orchards, but by stark contrast, only a few hundred yards east is the desert, bleak, sandy, dusty. One experiences the heat, the radiant heat of the area, but at night, the desert is merciless in its cold. 
One sees abundance, grapes, flocks, herds, but at the same time in every place men, women, and children are begging, some desperate, some pretending, some hopeless. On every lip during the day one hears the greetings and the farewells of shalom and salam, peace, yet this city, the city of peace, has 26 times been attacked, destroyed, and rebuilt, and the pockmarks of modern artillery are still apparent. One is aware of unity and diversity. It is a melting pot of religions and divisions within divisions, yet all claim a precarious hold on what is sacred to them. Most of the buildings of the city were built of Jerusalem stone, reflecting a light so intense that one must squint or close down his camera lens. Yet visible from here are the valleys, the valleys of deepest darkness. Into just such a world Jesus came. There was then and there is now no ease. Jerusalem was a place of perpetual tension. After visiting the Haas Pavilion, where as many as 20 buses often gather, we will go to a place of comparative quiet, the home of the architect of Jerusalem, where we can view the Dome of the Rock from the west. We brought you here to look at the vista from the south. We're only two, perhaps less than two miles from Ramat Rachel, which is a high point between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Looking from here, known today as the Haas Pavilion, you have a sense of the heights and depths of the city Jerusalem. On the east to your right, you see again the Mount of Olives, and most of what you see is the collection of tombs at the southern and eastern end. Then you see the valley that is known as Kidron. Then you see the rise all the way from the lower area, which was anciently the city of David, up to the crest, which is the location today of the Dome of the Rock. Then another valley between the old city area, now walled, but that wall is only about 300 years old, and the pool, as it's known as Sultan's Pool, a valley, and then another rise, and the larger buildings there, modern buildings, the tower of, of the YMCA, and the rectangle, the King David Hotel. Why look at this? in the perspective of the life of Christ. Well, there is a Jewish tradition that Jerusalem is the height, the very height of the world. It's fanciful because, of course, there are higher places. But in this region, if you're going to reach the holy city, so the saying goes, you must always go up. And if you leave, you can only leave by going down. So if you make Aliyah today, that's to ascend. If you withdraw, 
then you are numbered with the Yordim, those who go down. Now, the other point is that this forms, as you look at it from this direction, forms what in English alphabet would be a W. But in the Hebrew language, it forms a sheen. And a sheen is symbolic of the prayer posture. This goes way back to the Levitical practice of holding your arms up in a certain posture with the prayer shawl forward and forming this sheen posture. So, in other words, as you lift your hands, then your arms form the two sides of the W and the middle part is formed by your head. So the lovely legend that Jerusalem is a perpetual prayer to God. Well, that's all the more significant in light of what Jesus the Messiah did. For on those heights, the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, he delivered his greatest teachings and set his greatest example. And somewhere in the region of that rocky area, buttressed by the Herodian stones, he gave his own life and shed his blood. In his vision of the altar, this is John the Revelator, it is said that the blood of the martyrs which is gathered there will plead unto heaven. Well, so it will and so it does. And whether Jesus was crucified on the Golgotha, which is presently just north of the Herodian Gate, or whether it was, as the older tradition says, at the place where the present Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built, this outcropping of stone on what, if we can trust the Old Testament narrative was Moriah, sealed his witness and his testimony on earth. Jesus Christ was the martyr of martyrs. And you are looking at the altar on which he gave his all. We are now in the home of the architect, the modern architect of the reconstructed Jewish quarter in Jerusalem. Out this window, and you might just stay looking out as I speak, uh, out this vista window you see the western wall and many gathered to pray there. Beyond it, the Temple Mount, the Dome, and still beyond that, the Eastern Mountains. This is the place for me to review briefly some of the efforts at entrapment that occurred in Jesus' last few days. Uh, let me name just three. There was first the encounter of those who came after calculating on a way to catch on, as it were, to his words, and said, Master, where do you get your authority? By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the authority? Now, they were quite aware that either way he answered, 
they would have him. If he claimed that he was of God, they could reply, then why do not those who represent God officially accept you? If he said of men, they could say, who, the Romans, who are not in harmony with you, or the Jews, who are about to bring you to trial. Jesus replies with a question, a long-standing rabbinical custom. The baptism of John, he says, was it from heaven or of men? They reason with themselves, if we say from heaven, why then did we not obey him? And if we say only of men, what of those standing around who followed him as a prophet? So they return, we cannot tell. And Jesus replies, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Or again, is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? Jesus asks for a penny with Caesar's superscription, asks, whose image is this? They say Caesar's. Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And says the sequel, they could not take hold of his words before the people. Or again, those who doubt the resurrection, the Sadducees come and give him an unanswerable question. What is the destiny of a wife who has belonged to seven husbands? Ye do err, he says, not understanding the scriptures. And that leads us to a pattern that undergirds all of the gospel accounts and is even clearer in the inspired version that Jesus again and again convicts those who are attempting to convict him on the grounds of self-contradiction. It isn't that he is saying to them they must be credulous and believe things they have never believed before. It is that they are inconsistent in affirming one thing and then denying its implication. So, for example, repeatedly they say that they sustain and honor the Mosaic Law, Torah, and his reply is, if ye had kept the law, ye would have received me, for I am he who gave the law. That's the JST for Matthew 9. They say, in a sense of divine preferment, we are Abraham's children, and implying, who are you? Well, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What he says to them is, if ye be Abraham's children, then do the works of Abraham. Uh, we follow Moses, they say. He replies, a greater than Moses is here. We know the prophecies, they say. Then how is it, he asks, that you neglect and even deny prophecies of me? We keep the Sabbath, they cry, and you break it. And he replies, I am the Lord of the Sabbath day. They cite Isaiah and say, we believe Isaiah. How is it, he replies, that you reject the Messiah of Isaiah? 
We object to blasphemy, they say. And he asks, is it blasphemy to forgive sins on the Sabbath? We accept John, many say to him, but uh, as for you, no. Jesus replies in the JST, Ye yourselves say, He, John, is a prophet. Then ye ought to receive his testimony, meaning his testimony of me. And now in the last days of his life, when he has brought a man from blindness to sight, and the Pharisees find every way they can to avoid acknowledging that he has done so, he then asks them if they are not blind. And they, offended at the ascription, say, We are not. And he replies, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore, your sin remaineth. In our own parable of the tame and wild olive tree, there is a line when the Lord of the vineyard says, What more could I have done? Jesus standing before the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and before their own counsel, is asked once again, Art thou the Christ? And he says, which is the description of the dilemma, in full, if I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. The message, I believe, is that the question hereafter will not be, why didn't you give me more evidence? The question will be put to us, how did you manage to suppress the invincible evidence within the light given you from before the foundation of the world.